Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today, once again, it is my privilege to introduce our next guest, Doug Meyer Kuno. Doug is an amazing individual with so much to offer from his experience and his expertise. It's a privilege to have him here with us today. Doug started his company, Carolina Ingredients, as a one-man show back in 1990. 29 years later, after multiple structural evolutions, changing the focus of the organization and multiple cultural evolutions, as we'll certainly hear during the conversation, he became the first privately held organization to be purchased by the Mitsubishi Group. And the lessons that he learned along the way, the relationships he established along the way, and in some cases, even the decisions he would have liked to have had back along the way, are things that he shares regularly with people to help us with our own personal and professional leadership journeys as well. He is an amazing resource. I first met Doug when I was invited to attend a meeting as a guest uh, that was populated by very smart and very successful people. And anytime I find myself in a room like that, I make sure that I stay to myself typically and I observe as much as I can. I want to learn as much from people in those groups. And I also want to observe how they act amongst themselves. And one of the things I typically try to key in on is who is the leader amongst a group of leaders, regardless of title. And it was very, very quick for me to be able to determine that day, the first time that I met Doug, that this group of very smart and successful people all look towards him as the leader within the group. And I very quickly took note of that and of subsequent meetings and subsequent conversations and time that I spent with Doug. He only continues to reaffirm the impression that I got that first day, that first time that I met him. In this conversation today, not only are we going to talk about his experiences, but we are going to specifically reference some of the examples that he shares in his book, Empowered Leadership, published by Forbes. It's a great read. It's a recipe, a playbook, whatever term you want to use to leadership and leadership development. And I'm really excited to be able to talk through it with him today. This is going to be a wonderful conversation to be able to spend an hour uninterrupted with somebody with Doug experience and insight is a really special opportunity for us. Before we dive in, I do want to thank our sponsors. First, Humantel. Please head over to Humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for a 25% discount off of all of their online training. Best-in-class training for how to accurately evaluate emotional changes that people are likely experiencing based on shifts in their facial expressions and body language. Please check that out. Also, please head over to Emotional Intelligence magazine at ei-magazine.com and experience their ever-growing library of emotional intelligence-related services, articles, videos, books, training programs, the list goes on. Please check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine. And certainly, especially for the professional interviewers who may be listening, please check out the International Association of Interviewers at CertifiedInterviewer.com. That is an organization with a singular dedication to continuing to further the standards and expectations that all professional investigative interviewers adhere themselves to, from academic resources to interviews to training events to in-person live events, a community for people to support and communicate with each other. There's so much going on over there at the International Association of Interviewers. Please check them out at certifiedinterviewer.com. So that's enough. Let's go ahead and get started. Without further ado, I introduce to you, Doug Meyer Cunha. Good morning, Doug. It is so great to see you. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Pleasure to be here. It's always good to be with you, Michael, and um, I'm honored to have the opportunity to spend some time with you. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. So there are so many questions I want to ask you, and we'll have time to get into some of them for sure today. Uh, but to give some folks who don't know you a little bit of a background on you, can you let us, can you just give us, I guess, the Cliff Notes version as to what led you to start Carolina Ingredients? And then we'll dive into your book and some things after that. Sure. Um, I always thought I was going to be a corporate guy, or at least that was my intention. But uh, a few years into my business career, I realized that um, my philosophy might be different from corporate America. And then um, I was very fortunate uh, early in my career to, to be moved into a position where I had the opportunity to develop a territory, find customers, find vendors and product lines from scratch and, uh, and then create that for my my the company I worked for. 
And I did that and, and found I, I enjoyed it and uh, eventually went on my own. And I think one of the main reasons is uh, I realized, and for me, anyhow, in corporate America, I truly did not control my future. Um, it was really controlled by others. Uh, and, and I wanted the autonomy to, and freedom to, to control what my future looked like. And that's, that's, that's the real reason why I started on my own and started Caroline Ingredients. I'm sure that is a theme that is common with many entrepreneurs when they decide to step out and go their own way. It is. And, and then the next step is, uh, you know, figuring out how to do it financially, which is a whole different matter. Yeah. The beast in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and just quickly, I know you and I have had some conversations before, but it, can you give us a quick summary of Carolina ingredients, what you guys did as an organization, sure. and, and then we'll pivot into some of the lessons. Yeah. So we started out as a distribution company specifically for food ingredients, which basically meant we bought in bulk, we bought in truckloads and sold it in pallet or small quantities to food manufacturers, food processors. And over the years, I did that for roughly eight years and grew a sizable business, but realized I was losing 10, 20% of my market or my revenue stream every year to acquisitions where my customer was acquired by one of the larger corporations, specifically in the meat processing and um, dairy processing and, and snack foods. So over time, we realized that we needed to change our model. We needed to go from distribution to creating a value-add product in the marketplace or I just wasn't going to survive. And we did that by going into blending, um, blending seasonings where we went into manufacturing, thus creating the value add. Uh, it, that's a whole different model. It's not a transactional sale. It's a value add sale. And it requires uh, salespeople who, who have a different mindset. So we really changed the focus of the organization over a 10 year period of time. And about by 2000, we went into the manufacturing business. And uh, that led us into where where we were for the next, let's call it 18, 20 years. Sure. And that mindset shift, mm-hmm. along with the organizational shift that it required to be successful there, really is the perfect setup to start talking a bit about your book and some of the lessons that you have. Because there are so many lessons buried throughout your book. But for those that haven't read it, the book is The Recipe for Empowered Leadership, if I recall that correctly. And I will make sure that we have links everywhere in the show notes and everything associated with this so people can go find it when they have the time to read it. But having met you and spent some time with you, I I had high expectations for the book. Those, Those expectations were exceeded. And for me, I found it very interesting as I went through that on one hand, it was a recipe. It was a playbook, so to speak, like do these things, think these things, ask these questions, make these shifts in these decisions. But on the other hand, it was layered in with your stories and your experiences and different pivot points you went through and tough decisions you had to make and the people that helped you and what you considered. And I feel like going through that, there are so many things for people to take away, regardless of where they are in their leadership journey. And early in the book, you shared an experience that certainly sounds like was among the most pivotal in your leadership journey. And you talked earlier about your philosophy being different than a lot of people in corporate America that caused you to take the shift. And when I read it, my first thought was, of course, Doug did that. (laughs) But then I had to stop and think of all the people I've met and organizations I've worked with. I don't know that I could name five or six CEOs that would have stopped and asked the question, you asked your staff, when you pulled them aside and asked, am I micromanaging you? Right. And I went back to that anecdote multiple times as I was going through your book. So if we can take some time here, I would love for you, if you could, to explain to the group what led you to stop and ask your management team, am I micromanaging you? Which sounds like something many CEOs might consider but very few, if any, would pull the trigger on asking that question and opening themselves up to an honest answer. Right. And I think one of the 
Excuse me. One of the first steps is uh, learning how to be objective. And we'll talk about that more later. But I think as a CEO, it is extremely difficult to be objective with yourself. And, and if you can be objective with yourself, your leadership skills inherently multiply because you can, you can evaluate how you're doing. And, and few people have that level of skill set, number one, or um, the frankness with themselves. Most people like to think of themselves as better than they are. And the reality is we're humans and we make a lot of mistakes. And so we have to start understanding our, our mistakes and then weaknesses and strengths and so forth. So having said that, the we came, you know, going back to the book, we came to an issue where we we had grown well and we were doing well, but then we sputtered for a, roughly a year and we just weren't getting the momentum we thought. And um, almost out of frustration, actually it was, it was out of frustration. I blurted out to the senior team, are you being micromanaged? And there was this quietness, almost unsettling uneasiness that that went across the room. And it just so happened, we we took a break. And during lunch, um, the VP, he wasn't the VP of sales at the time, but he became PSL. So I refer to him that uh, Mike came up to me and said, well, you know, Doug, you, you do sometimes micromanage. And of course I said, no, I don't No, I don't. And um, that night I reflected on it. And, you know, roughly a week later, I realized, yeah, the real problem is me. It's not the team. It's me not giving them the authority to make the decisions that I had to make that decision. And I'm simplifying because we're on a podcast but in essence, that's what it boils down to. So at that moment, I decided I was going to change everything about how I managed. And you go, well, how did you do that? And, you know, I, I started out the beginning of the conversation by saying you have to be objective. The, the second thing for me, one of my strengths is my desire to be competitive and win. And I wanted to be a company that was nationwide. And I, I realized right then and there, I could not achieve um, a, a national size organization if I continued to manage as a micromanager. That, that, that was never going to let me achieve my results. So my competitive nature allowed me to overrule um, my desire to be a micromanager and, and decide to become a better leader. That's, that's how it happened. Which is a, a summarized version of the story. And I don't want to take too much from the book because people need to read the book. Um, if I recall correctly, when you started Carolina Ingredients, you really started it yourself. That's correct. It was started from scratch, one man operation. And I feel like, and please correct me everywhere I go wrong. A lot of times when people start organizations themselves, everything is on us. So we make all of the decisions. And then at every level of success, we obviously give ourselves the credit for it. The more credit we get, the more control we take, the more risk we assume. And it can become harder and harder and harder over time to let go of some of these decisions and processes and trust others when we are the ones who put this organization on our back and brought it all the way to where it is. So the way you tell the story now is it's humble and it's it's abridged, of course, but to, to unpack and understand the psychology behind that a little bit and understand how many years of self-reliance and success and control built you to that place, to be able to let that go over a relatively short period of time is an astounding shift. Yeah. And to, to your point, we, we believe that we have, um, going back to when you start by yourself, you make every decision and, and you don't have a choice. You have to make all the decisions. Every, everything is upon you. You don't really most likely have a lot of mentors you can go to. And so when you're building the organization, you assume everybody, when you hire people, everybody knows to do it your way because that's the way you did it, rightly or wrongly. And it worked because, you know, you grew. And therefore, you make assumptions which are not good. And that is that your way, A, is the right way. And B, everybody 
knows it's the right way, or it should be done that way when you haven't even told anybody. So that's the premise we need to start with. At I made the assumption that people who are now placing orders or shipping product out or whatever the case may be, knew that there was a process and there wasn't. It was my process that I knew in my head. So over the years, those processes not only were um, done differently by other people, but they were not put in. There was no SOP, standard operating procedure, set up to tell people how to do it properly. And once we established those premises and those SOPs and understanding that we had to have templates, that became the guidelines in which we ran the organization, but it allowed me to get out of the way and say, follow the process, not, not me, you know, go, go to the managers, go to the process, not me for the answer. But the original point to what you said was, yeah, I created it at the beginning. So I assumed everybody should follow my way. The reality is, and I think this is very important for CEOs to understand or entrepreneurs is we are all different and we have all different personality makeups and profiles, if you will, that we can run through assessments. That doesn't mean we won't get to the same answer or the same finish goal or end goal. We just have different ways of doing it. And so when we empower people, what I talk a lot about is the ability to empower the people to do it within your culture yet in a way that is that works for them because your way may not work for them. Now it has to follow standard operating procedures and it has to follow the culture of the organization, but you need to give the individuals the leeway to perform at a level that works within their personality profile. Almost like freedom within a framework, give them the guardrails. And as long as they're in there, if it works for them. Yes. I found another fascinating nugget in there where you talk about putting the SOPs and the processes in place, which allows us to step back. All too often, people feel like they're micromanaged when they are the ones being questioned. Did you do this? When is this going to be get done? What are you working on now? What are you working on next? Where are you with this? But when we can coach to the process, and literally now we're removing the word you from the questions and we're checking on not adherence to the process, but how are we flowing in relation to the process and the expectation, the schedule we've agreed upon. Now, a lot of times that feeling of micromanagement goes away. To your point, they're empowered. They have somebody else to go to. They have their own freedom to make their decisions within the culture. But now when the coaching conversations take place, they're focused on the process, not the person. And even that makes a huge difference. So let's talk about that. That's a great question because I had to start that with the senior management team. It wasn't like I said, we're going to change the way we manage the organization and I'm going to change. And they went, oh, eureka moment. We Let's just believe in Doug and follow him. No, they had been... Um, they had spent years understanding that, you know, their, their wrist might be slapped or it might be done wrong. And Doug may have an issue with that or whoever. And I had, they had to trust me, right? That trust did not come overnight. That trust had to be built literally over a year to maybe 18 months, which required me a number of times to bite my tongue and allow a mistake to be made so that they were empowered and had the ability to learn from the mistake, but also do their jobs. And if I corrected it every time, that was micromanagement. I had to learn to just wait things out and allow people to grow and mature within their positions and allow for that freedom of trust to be created between the senior management team and myself. And again, that doesn't happen overnight. It took 18 months. And during that process, we we built, or that time frame, we built a process in which we all agreed on how we would manage the company. So now we can talk about your point of how does that happen um, when we empower somebody. So when one of the things that I learned is I had to get buy-in from the employee. So if I set an expectation we'll do something easy like a sales rep. I want you to grow your your business 50% this year. Well, if they knew that was not possible, 
They may agree to it, but they know inherently they're not going to be able to do it. So it doesn't make any sense. I I have to get them to buy in. So when the buy-in occurs with, with something like this, I want you to grow your business 50%. The buy-in is, hey, Doug, that's not possible. What? Okay, what's reasonable in your mind? Eh, let's go with 20% increase. Okay, that's reasonable. Now you can set the expectations of what's going to happen for that 20% to occur because you have now the buy-in. And then you hold them accountable to that and you've empowered them, A, to get to 20%. They've explained and articulated how they're going to do that. So those you agree with those expectations and you hold them accountable to those expectations over a period of time, whether that's a year, a month, but you do it over a process. You, you know, you meet monthly for that. But it's it never works if you set the agenda or set the goal or expectations and there's no buy-in. I mean, it may work on occasion. But if you truly want to empower your company or empower your team and and associates, then you have to have buy-in and there has to be agreement and alignment. And that's a big key word, alignment inside the organization for true growth and um, synchronicity to happen for that growth to occur. All great points. And illustrating that it took you 18 months to even start to build that trust. It doesn't happen overnight. And in fact, in the beginning, there was probably more distrust. Sure. Like, wait, is this real? Is this a trick? Is this like a one-week thing? <laughs> like, is, is this going to pass? When are we going to see the old Doug again? So Correct. <laughs> to have to work through all of that for 18 months, that's a commitment. And I can imagine for somebody who is as competitive as you are, having to bite through your tongue, in order to allow people to learn from their mistakes, develop that buy-in, contribute to their own expectations and goals, that must have been an exercise in restraint for you as well. It was a game changer for me, and it really was hard. And and, um, uh, and again, nobody believed it at first. And to your comment, when is the old Doug going to come back? You know, the first three months, I'm sure they were all cringing, saying, yeah, when's the old Doug coming back? But the reality was, is once we probably got a year into it, the trust was definitely being built. And, it, you know, I would say it was a full 12 months to 18 months before it fully uh, matured into a seasoned senior management team that knew you could speak openly in that room and there was no consequence. There was no retribution because somebody said, well, what we're doing isn't working. <laughs> You know, and I'm simplifying here, but we were, we all built that level of trust that we could communicate effectively inside the senior management team and trust that what we said was not going to be taken personal, but taken with, you know, hey, these are my peers who want the best for me and the organization. And they're speaking from um, a critical feedback standpoint, not a critique standpoint. Sometimes the the more the feedback hurts, the more important it is. Yeah. And, and being able to set up that environment where people are willing to do that again. You know, there's, I meet plenty of people that talk that game, but very, very few that have the humility. Or, and like you said earlier, the I'll use the word awareness. I think objectivity was your word to be able to execute that. And in your book and in our conversations as well, I've heard you talk a lot about the importance of culture, as you've mentioned, and the mission and vision of an organization. And I know those terms get thrown around a lot. What's our mission? What's our vision? And in my conversations with you previously and in your book, I was very impressed to the the depth that you explore them and then how they literally become operating guides Mm -hmm. for the organization, for those SOPs. So I would love to take your buy-in conversation and your trust building conversation there for a moment and ask as you're, I I guess first, I imagine as you went from it being just you all the way through your evolutions up until the time you sold the business that the culture, the probably the core components of the culture didn't change a whole lot. But components of it, outside components of it, likely had to evolve with the business. So from a communication standpoint, 
how did you create that alignment in buy-in over time, not just with your senior leadership, but throughout the organization to achieve all the success that you did? Yeah. We'll start with culture and eventually we'll get to the vision and mission. So let's start there. Um, the culture inside an organization, particularly an entrepreneur, will that culture will take on that entrepreneur's personality, most likely. And we go, well, we have a culture of sharing information. And it might be uh, the entrepreneur doesn't like to share information. They like to keep things close to the vest. But that entrepreneur thinks they share information. So they they might say, my culture is to be transparent when the reality is, is they aren't. So I have a saying is, if you aren't creating your culture, someone else will do it for you. And it's unlikely it'll be what you think it is. It's something else, right? And I can, we don't have time today, but I can give you countless of companies that think they have a culture, but in in essence, the real culture is something else than what's written. So um, going back to the entrepreneur, Hey, if you if you think you have a culture, it's most likely your personality at the beginning, and then you have to create a new culture of what you want the organization to stand for. So there are two ways to do that. You can a as the entrepreneur, we all start off and as um, you know a few people, most likely not a, a, a large organization. It's a few people, and that culture takes on the personality profile of us, and then over time we develop that. It can be developed as the CEO wants it or the entrepreneur wants it, or you can include your team. And I I encourage people that are trying to start a brand new culture to start from scratch and develop that mindset of creating a new culture inside the organization. And if you want, maybe we can talk about that. But going back to your question of how did we do that over time? We allowed in our organization, we allowed the senior people. Well, we allowed everybody to um, talk about the best attributes and characteristics of all the employees inside the company. And then we put that on a wall and the people that they talked about the most, we brought back into the room over time and said, okay, that's roughly six people. This, This is what the company says about us. Let's develop a culture out of these attributes and characteristics that are positive because there were negatives too. Um, And then over time, we developed that to six or seven core values inside the organization. I say seven because eventually we added another one. And those core cultures can change over time. I'll give an example. One was get it done. We believed in getting things done quickly, nimbly, without a lot of bureaucratic stuff in the way. But we realized that get it done might mean skip corners, right? Cut corners. And then we had to add, get it done right. (laughs) You know, do it right the first time, get it done right. So that, that one word changed things. Anyhow, my point is that these can evolve. How did how did we get people to believe in it? That's your question. We would talk about it every single month. We did not put banners or um, decals on people's desk or in the hallway. We didn't do the banner thing because it has to be in, inherent. It has to be in, inherent inside of every employee that you hire and they have to live and breathe it. And that starts with the CEO. If the CEO or the entrepreneur doesn't believe in it or doesn't preach it, doesn't carry the torch on it, it will not be sustainable. So that's number one. But once you tell, once you communicate those core cultures to the organization on a regular, on a, we did it on a monthly basis. People can choose how they want to do it. We celebrated every quarter. We celebrated the best examples that employees exhibited of that core culture. And we gave them money. We gave 50 bucks cash to the person who won that nomination. And we gave 20 bucks to the person who nominated that person. Um, So in a nutshell, without going into too much detail, we celebrated, we talked about it every month. We gave examples of it every month at monthly meetings. And every quarter we, we gave a payout 
uh, to the best nominations and the best people who represented the cult culture. And let me tell you, you do that. I, it, it's the 50 bucks is, is 50 bucks. That's not what hits the person. What hits the person is the fact that they're recognized. That is way more powerful than the $50. I mean, the $50 is icing on the cake, if you will. But what's sustainable and what's meaningful to the individual is being recognized for making a contribution to the organization under the core culture values. That truly, over a period of years, that set us apart from any organization. And um, I'll say one more thing about core cultures. And that is, in today's environment, people can copy your technology. They can copy how you do things, if you will. They can copy your product, but they cannot mimic or copy your culture. Never. And your culture is what sustains you and and inevitably can set you apart from your competition. Amen. Nothing to add there. You mentioned earlier on, as you were speaking, talking about, in my word, not yours, re-engineering a culture within mm-hmm. the organization. You mentioned getting back to that. I'd love to give you the microphone back and learn more from your experience because you've done that. And I know you've helped many other executives do that as well. So what have you learned going back and re-engineering a culture that already exists within an organization? Yeah. So one of the, and it's, I tell you what, I, I have so much fun doing this um, because it's, it's such an enlightening experience for the employees and, and for the CEO. So if, if, a CEO says to me or an entrepreneur says to me, um, I want you to help with my culture. You know, one of the things I, I will ask is, what do you think the culture is right now? Just write it down. And then if I meet with the senior team, I'll ask them to write it down. I I don't think in the number of times I've done this, I mean, maybe maybe it's happened, but I don't believe it's happened. Never to my recalling has everybody written down the same culture values. Never. Um, they, they think the cold va- the core culture values or something, but you get um, an array of information. And that is the first step when this, when a, and a CEO or entrepreneur can look at that and go, wow, my senior management isn't even aligned um, with what I say. Uh, now, the only time that that might change, I'm thinking of one where we were in the room and the court cultures were on the wall so they could cheat and look at it. But, um, you know, take that away. It rarely, rarely are the senior management in sync and aligned with the clarity of what the entrepreneur or CEO believes. And that's your that's your first line of defense, Right your senior management team should be aligned with you. So if they're not aligned, how how is it possible for the second tier leaders of your organization to be aligned? So that's, and if there's not alignment, what you think is the number one goal inside the organization is most likely not what a lot of other people think. And this really applies to operations that are in manufacturing or technology where you have multiple departments that don't talk to each other on a, on a regular basis. You know, they're doing their own thing and what they think is the number one responsibility or, or priority inside an organization is usually aligned around their department, right? It's not necessarily aligned, uh, aligned around what the number one priority is of the organization. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sales, right? It can be, improving technology. It it could be anything. So um, developing a new software process, whatever it is, if if you have multiple departments, generally you don't see people aligned on on that priority. And a lot of times I feel like when I work with leadership teams, they get upset about that. And the further you go down the org chart, if somebody is in the machine shop, if somebody is in the warehouse, if somebody is on the front line talking to customers, we should expect 
that their first concern should be about their ability to be successful doing that one thing. Like that is what their life is based on. It's how they take care of their family. In some ways, it's how they validate themselves. It's how they feel appreciated. So understanding that, okay, at every level of the organization, this might be a little bit different, but now let's avoid the dangerous sailboat analogy. Like if I leave port and I'm one degree off course, how far right. is my destination <laughs> am I going to end up? So instead of being upset that maybe at the front line, actually at the hourly level or at the frontline management level, people might feel a little bit differently. Maybe they should feel that way from their perspective. So then how do we lead by example and show, demonstrate the commitment that you talked about earlier in order to create that commitment from the top down instead of fighting that, actually embracing and working with it? Yeah, so there are a couple of ways. And those are great points because you you obviously have people that are literally doing a job and feeding a family. And you have to, you have to learn how to resonate with them and how to connect with them. Uh, I'm a, I, I can go on with that. It's a, it's very personal to me. I've watched a lot of employees, you know, struggle. And so I, I made this one of my call callings, if you will. So you do it two ways. Let's go back to the culture. You, hey, we want to give you the responsibility to do things. You know, a, the typical things that are I call table stakes. You got to show up on time and you got to do your job and perform and you have to work, you know, the number of hours, whatever it is that you work and, and, and perform at that level. That's a table stake. But how you do it is within the organization's core, core value system. And then you have, how does that impact the company as a whole? So if you're making a budget, you know, let's do something simple. If you're shipping product out every day, if you're the uh, warehouse clerk that's shipping product every day, you're, if the priority is to, again, we'll make it simple. We want to increase sales 10%. Your priority is getting that product shipped correctly the first time to the right customer at the right address with the right number of widgets that are going to be sent and that there are no mistakes. That's how you're aligned with getting that 10%, right? And then here's the next piece. What's the mission of the organization? There's a difference between mission and vision. Let's talk about mission first. The mission is the passion, purpose, cause of your organization. Your customers generally align with one of those three and why they buy from you. Vision, I mean, excuse me, passion, purpose, and your cause. Passion, purpose, cause. I think I said something earlier, so forgive me. Passion, purpose, cause. And if you look at Apple, Google, um, Amazon, they all their passion, their purpose, their cause, their customers align around that, and they're very, very loyal to it. Very loyal. Um, and they don't leave it. Uh, so when we talk about that with our, for my organization, our mission was to make the world taste better. Very simple. You want it very simple. Why did we choose that? Because we had people in the back of the facility making seasoning blends. They were in production. We had people in the back shipping seasoning blends. And everybody could resonate if they were having a bad day, whether their car broke down, the kid is sick at home with chicken pox, my mom has cancer, um, my wife lost their job. Why am I here? I'm here because part of my role in this organization is to make the world taste better. It may sound corny, but that was our passion, purpose, and our cause. And we tried really hard to incorporate that passion with our employees so that when they had a bad day, they could go back and go, okay, this is why I'm here. My difference in here is that I'm helping the world. We're making the world taste better. I'm helping my company make the world taste better. And so you got the mission, then you have the core culture values and the priority of the company, and you try to align all those three with everybody in the organization as to how they are meaningful to the organization and how they have a purpose inside the organization. Everybody, 
everybody. I mean, we're only as good as the value you create. If we make a mistake on the order, we make a mistake on the order, it impacts everybody. If we if we enter it wrong, we make a mistake. If we ship it to the wrong address, we make a mistake. Doesn't matter how good everybody else was, everybody has to perform at the highest value in order to succeed together. There you go. Thank you. And I wrote down the line, you're only as good as the value you create. I will cite you on that for as long as I can remember to. No promises. There might come a time where I convince myself I might have created it. But I love that line. You are only as good as the value you create. Did you? I just want to, before I transition on to the next question, I know yeah. you might have mentioned it and I just didn't catch it. You started with mission. Was there anything you wanted to add about the vision? I know you talked about aligning all three. Was there anything you didn't mention about the vision that you wanted to add? So there are a million books on vision, right? And there are a lot of lot a lot of teachers and educators and business people that are smarter than me and who've talked about vision. And I've I've you know gone to school and learned a lot, but I I, I make it very simple. Out of all my years of, of business and education, it, it really comes down to this. Your vision is what you want to be when you grow up as an organization. So think of yourself as a teenager. What do you want to be when you're 21? Um, And when you're 21, what do you want to be when you're 30? What do you want to be when you grow up? And in today's world, I I tell people vision should be somewhere between three to five years and be able to adapt because it doesn't, it, it changes quickly. So it's where you want to be, what you want to be, who you want to be. Um, and how are we going to get there? Those are the staples of your vision it is not your passion, purpose, or cause. Your your mission should be publicized to outside to to your clients and customers. Your vi- your mission, uh, excuse me, your vision should be internal. I know a lot of people share it, and that's fine. But you know what? I don't know a customer that cares about my company's vision. They care about my mission because if I make the world taste better, it's helping them. And they want to know what's going to help them. What resonates with them? They could care less if we want to be the you know the biggest, largest company in the seasoning business. What they care about is what we're doing for them. So going back to the vision, it's what do you want to be when you grow up? And pick it, pick something obtainable, pick something that inspires your team. That is a you know a goal that is obtainable, but not just like ridiculously out of out of high in the sky, and then work at it, work at getting to it and keep it within the company because your competitors don't need to know about it. That's my personal opinion. I'm sure there are plenty of people who disagree with it, but frankly, um, we didn't need to share our, our vision with our competitors and we didn't mind them knowing our mission because again, that, that was back to kind of our core values and they weren't going to be able to replicate that. It's hard to fault that logic. As so. as I've been listening to your examples, and you've you've already contributed so much to this conversation and shared so many insights and had so many teaching points, which I'm truly grateful for. I feel like there's an underlying theme, and I'm biased towards finding this theme, of course, where the communication that's necessary to drive these changes, to build this alignment, to generate the trust, to get everybody on board, as you said, to resonate people with people and even find our own objectivity. And there was something that jumped out to me when, when I was reading your book. And if I recall correctly, it wasn't a big section. It was just sort of a line where you called it out and then kept moving. But that was the evolution from a boss to coach to mentor. Mm-hmm. And I have a feeling that that also lines up with some of your callings based on some of the work that you still do. I would love it if you could take a minute or so and walk us through what that evolution means to you and why it's so important. Yeah. That, so a boss um, is, you know, make it real simple, is your direct boss, your, who you report to. And you, you have to listen to them because they're your boss. So there are certain things you have to do. Um, if they were removed and promoted and you didn't have to listen to them, you probably, if they were a level one leader, you probably don't listen to them anymore. If they left the organization, you don't follow them. You don't admire them. You don't aspire to be like them. 
So therefore you don't follow them in any way and you're not going to necessarily listen because they're outside of your sphere of influence now. But the direct bosses has a lot of influence on you, right? And upon you. So that's the first, that's the boss mentality. The coaching mentality is, is a higher sphere of being a leader and you are going to your uh, direct reports with something like this. When they come to a, they ask, you know, I have a problem. What do I need to do? What do I do to solve my problem? And the answer isn't, well, this is what you should do. The answer is, give me three scenarios that you think are best. um, And tell me what you would like to do. That's coaching. And then coaching goes one step further and saying, um, what do you think is going to turn? What are the pros and cons, the pluses and minuses of that decision? And you take it to a higher level. What's the outcome going to look like? That's coaching. Mentoring is at a different level where there's complete trust between you and that person. And they follow you, not because you're a direct report, I mean, a a direct boss or even higher tier boss, you're outside their level of immediate influence of the organization. You know, think of it as outside their business industry and they, they listen to you and follow you because you mentor them in multiple ways. You mentor them from a standpoint of how to become a better employee and how to make better business decisions like the coaching, but it's also spheres of influence out of that could be in their personal lives, could be on how to lead other people in inside their organization, but they're listening to you and they're aspiring to be like you at a higher level. And you have, without ever knowing you have provided an, a positive influence, you've given them um, a positive influence and a level to reach that is higher than what they would have thought of achieving on their own. You know, that's being the person that they are to being a leader that they are. It's, it's much more than just being a, an employee or a business person. It's the, who you are as a human being. That's the best way to put it. That's mentoring. I love it. And the, the mindset it takes to think of yourself as aspiring to that level in somebody else's mind, because we can't choose to be a mentor. People have to choose us to be a mentor to them. Mm-hmm. So having the awareness to aspire to that and then treating people in a way over a period of time where you're not just forcing your success upon them or forcing them to fall into line. But in a lot of ways, I believe, and please correct me on this, vulnerability goes hand in hand with mentorship because somebody has to put themselves in a vulnerable position to seek advice and they have to see vulnerability and transparency and some of these other things in potential mentors. And in order to want to seek it from them, no one's going to come to me if they just see, think I'm walking around telling them how great I am and how awesome I am and all this great stuff I did, which, you know, those stories will be very short, but <laughs> if they think that's all that they're getting, they're not going to come to me for anything different. So really having that vulnerability coin spinning throughout the conversations over a period of time is a very important piece. It, it, vulnerability is really true. I think you've hit that on the nail. It really makes a difference. And if you can be vulnerable with your employees or others, and demonstrate, hey, I made a mistake and you're sincere in that. And you can demonstrate that you are uh, trying to correct that. You you build a higher tier of respect with that individual. And we didn't get into some of the stories yet. I don't know if we'll have time, but the reality is we, and I've, I share this a lot. We, as a leader, you have to be authentic and genuine. And when you do that, you build up deposits. Think of a bank account. The more genuine and authentic I am and build loyalty with my team, the more deposits they build and they throw into my bank account. I'm going to make a mistake. I'm human. And some of those mistakes are going to be pretty significant and some are pretty minor. You got to hope that the significant ones, when, when you make that mistake, that that withdrawal does not come at a price that it depletes the bank account, that you have enough deposits of goodwill, authenticity, genuine, being genuine at leader, admitting your mistakes, that 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 withdrawal is only nominal. 
Um, but if you continue to make the same mistake over and over again, those, <laughs> guess what? Those withdrawals keep coming out and there are no deposits being made and your bank account gets depleted and your credibility is destroyed. Couldn't have explained it better. You mentioned stories along that vein. Do you have a favorite story that you like to share? I'll share one because it made me very vulnerable. Um, you know, as a CEO, we one of the we, we like to think our door is always open and we like to think we're always available to employees and and we try, at least I do. And I had one of those cases where I had a a, a 10 year, maybe 12 year employee who worked in the warehouse who I'd known a long time. He had grown up with the company, if you will. And I was having, he came to my office um, and my door, door was open, but I was having a lousy morning and it just wasn't a good day. And he was standing in front of my door. His name is Jerome. And um, I knew he was going to tell me something bad. <laughs> I just knew he was there to complain that something in the warehouse was wrong and he wanted my advice or whatever. And I told him, Jerome, this is not a good day. I just don't have time for this. And I was very short and brief and cut him off at the knees, if you will. And I finally said, well, what is it that you want? And he looked at me, the sm he always had a smile. The smile dissipated from his face, his shoulders shrunk. And he said to me, and I still get goosebumps to this story. He said to me, Doug, I, I just wanted to tell you, I got engaged. Ugh. And I, I felt, you know, like an inch high. It was really humiliating that I took away this guy's joy that he wanted to share with me. An employee who worked in the warehouse at hourly wages, who I had built a great relationship with, to, to, for him to come out of the warehouse to tell me on his break that he's getting engaged or got engaged, and I just screwed it up. So he leaves the office, and I sat there for five minutes and really did not like what I had just done. Got up, went out to the, the production floor, warehouse floor, and you know, I was probably 10 minutes by this point. And he, I'm sure, had told people that that didn't go so well. I have no idea. But I can tell you what happened is most of those employees saw me sit on the floor, stand on the floor with them. And I went straight up to him, looked him straight in the eyes and apologized and said, I had no right to do that. I apologize. Jerome, tell me about your engagement. And I listened for, in eye to eye intently for the next 10 minutes, whatever it was, to his story. And then I shared that with my senior management team. And, you know, we shared it with others. Did I make up for it? Probably not. But the, the, the deposits I had built with him over the years did not destroy my credibility with him. It probably hurt it. But the fact that I came out there and was humble and vulnerable and apologized probably made him feel a lot better and went a long way to mending what I what a screw up I did in, in that short time frame. And it's easy for us to do, but it's one of the most incredible stories because it it humbled me that even when I think I'm trying to be a good CEO and entrepreneur with my team, that I can screw it up just as fast as anybody else. Thank you for sharing. And I think the, as you illustrated that, yes, the deposits you made ahead of time put you in position to survive the mistake. And then the direct action you took after it, sure. And maybe it didn't completely make up for it, but it took away a, a large chunk, I would imagine, of the pain or disappointment associated with that. And then again, kept you in the game moving forward after that. So the ability, again, to recognize that and course correct and not just file it away that some people would, well, today's a bad day. He just needs to understand that. Well, that, right. that, that's not how it goes. But it's easy to rationalize that type of decision to make us feel comfortable with the mistake that we made. And that's exactly right. And this, this one of the things I'll share and for the audience is um, CEOs, entrepreneurs, we're, if we have success, we get very prideful and, you know, we, that sometimes gets in our way of being objective, same as our ego. And you're right. I could have just said, I could have blown it off and said, you know what? He just needs to understand I'm having a bad day. The bigger picture was I needed to humble myself and apologize 
because the bigger picture is not about just me. It's impacting him long-term, you know, and celebrating his, his uh, engagement and celebrating that with the team and, and honoring people as human beings, you know, that they're, they're people. And, and if we recognize that, that goes a long way in recognizing our abilities to lead other people. It sure does. And from an overly pragmatic standpoint, bad news travels fast. So had you not addressed it, to your point, you said in the intervening 10 minutes, he may have said something to somebody else. If you hadn't addressed it, by the end of the day, how many people does he say something to? And then the ripple effects of your leadership deposits without the whole organization. So, so many valuable points there. We're starting to come close to time, and I know you're very busy. You have a lot going on, and I'm very thankful that you shared the time with us today. There are a couple of questions I'd like to wrap up with as we move on. Throughout your book, there was a continuous theme in every single chapter, invest, inspire, ignite. Mm -hmm. I feel like those are three key ingredients for you. If you could explain to us where that comes from, how you put that into action, why it's so important for you. Yeah. So the easy thing is invest. We, there's a saying you can not invest in your employees because you're afraid they're going to go somewhere else. And so you can not invest in your employees and they stay, right? So you got to invest in employees to grow your organization and make it where you make it what you want it to be. And that's just the cost of doing business. Sometimes you lose out and they leave, but what's worse is they stay in that you haven't developed them. So you have to invest in your employees. And there's also the investment of what we talked about, just like with Jerome is personal investment. Um, there's all sorts of types. There's lunch, lunch and learns with your organization that you can do, but you have to be genuine. You have to invest in people time-wise, um, freedom like equals, give them opportunities to grow, to help develop their talent. That's all on the investment. Um, inspire is, you know, how do we inspire employees? How do we motivate them? There's all sorts, you know, from gift cards to celebrations of the culture, to awarding people for what they do great that represent our company, to rewarding them with bonuses. They're all different forms that you can do that to inspire people. But don't forget, um, people don't leave boss uh, companies usually for money. They leave bosses because they don't like their immediate boss. That's the number one. Um you will learn over time. We all learn over time that while money is important, it rarely is this deciding factor. There's other issues that we never think of. Hey, my my parents live in this town. I need to be here for them. Um, my children love their school. I need to keep stay in this area because of that. There are many, many, many reasons why people stay. So you want to inspire them to stay for the right reasons and and create the best environment you can and then ignite is the empowerment and you you've invested in them you've inspired them now ignite them to become and empower them to become the the employees and the people you want them to be and give them free reign not complete free reign but give them um and and a, a safe bubble if you will to work in and that don't don't micromanage them. Give them give them the parameters that they have to work in, and and go let them do their jobs. And you'll find that hey, might not be the same way you did it, but it was in inside the parameters that you set up, and they were successful. Thank you. And it's, you mentioned the micromanaging again, and just thinking back, kind of full circle as we move to wrap up here to the beginning of our conversation. If we think to ourselves, there's a chance we might be micromanaging. <laughs> We're probably micromanaging, like probably so. <laughs> by, the, by the time that crosses our mind and reaches our level of awareness, it's it's probably happening. In your book, there is a challenge that you put out to all of your readers, and if I recall it correctly, it's demonstrate ten seconds of courage. What does that mean to you? Um, the ability. First of all, the ability to hold your tongue for 10 seconds and not say anything. Um, and actually, it's probably the next day. And think before you talk. We have big microphones. 
meaning what we say matters. I'll give a great example. We're coming up on July 4th. Um, Let's say today I walked into the office and said, you know, gee, I'm scratching my head. I'm thinking we should maybe give everybody off the third. What do you think? And that resonates with everybody. Because I said it, the interpretation is something like this. We're getting off the third and the fourth. So tomorrow I go, well, I thought about it. We're not going to do that. We're, we're going to get off just the fourth. You, you, what you say means things to other people. And one of the hard, maybe one of the hardest lessons I ever learned is I had to shut my mouth because I talk out loud. I think out loud when I speak, it's the way I work. And when I say, maybe we should have the third off, that means to many people, I just said, we should give the third off. And doesn't matter. Perception is one's reality. What one perceives is other people's reality. And so 10 seconds of thinking that through and being intentional makes a big difference. It makes an enormous difference. And thank you again. This has been an amazing conversation. Anytime I find myself in a group of smart, successful people, one of my favorite things to do is watch the group and see who does the group gravitate towards? Who does the group listen to? Who does the group seek feedback from? Who emerges as the de facto influencer or leader of that group? The first time I met you was in a group of smart, successful people. And you were that person that I watched the entire group gravitate towards. And your book, our conversation today, everything you do is a consistent reminder and reflection of what I saw that day. And I'm very, very thankful that you chose to spend this time with us and impart all of these lessons and stories with us. Thank you so much. You mentioned earlier your calling. You have sold your organization. You have plenty of opportunities to choose whatever you want to do, but yet you still continue to give back in so many ways. So if people are looking to reach out to you, to contact you, to learn more about the organizations you're still involved with, how you support other organizations and support leaders, where can people find you and what are those services that you still provide? Sure. Well, first of all, Michael, thank you. I'm very humbled by your comments and I'm, I'm grateful for them. Thank you very much. Um, you can, I, I love to give back. I'm a big believer in giving back and paying forward um, to, for the next generation or to others. And I believe in impacting other people's lives by being a positive influence. Um, I can be reached at Doug or Doug at Empowered leadership.com that's empowered with an ed empowered leadership.com uh i can be found on on the web at empowered leadership.com or doug and that's m-e-y-e-r-c-u-n-o and uh you can find me there but doug at empowered leadership.com is an easy way to reach me and uh, i'd be glad to talk to anybody at any time I'll have all of those links in the show notes for sure. Uh, but it's also worth mentioning that you still work with organization and I provide did. guidance and leadership yes. and training organizations of all sizes and at all levels in their journey. So you're still very much involved in working with leaders to help apply everything we've talked about today and so much more. I mean, today was a thumbnail scratch on the iceberg. And if anybody is in the Rock Hill, South Carolina area, I believe you're involved with a group there that helps entrepreneurs get up and running and get off the ground. Right. There's a, supporting yeah, there's a group of uh, entrepreneurs who started an um, organization called the Gravity Center, and we're an incubator for uh, startups, for entrepreneurs who are literally trying to get their feet off the ground and, and build something. And some of them have been really successful. So we continue to work with those organizations, but it's it's to provide resources and an incubation system for entrepreneurs in Rock Hill. Fantastic. Well, Doug, thank you again. Keep up all the amazing work. I really appreciate you sharing your time and I look forward to the next time we get to share a room together. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much, Michael. Look forward to seeing you soon. Have a great day. You too. Take care. 
Doug, thank you so much. What an amazing conversation. I truly appreciate you taking the time to come on and share all of those stories, all of those lessons, all of those insights. Thank you so much. And I hope everybody listening got as much enjoyment and education out of that conversation that I did. Amazing quotes to be dropped into a conversation. You're only as good as the value that you create. The words that you say mean things to other people. That Jerome engagement story was incredibly powerful. And to hear those types of insights, how we can apply his lessons, his experience at an organizational level, at a personal communication level, from somebody who literally lived it, from starting the organization himself to developing it for decades, selling it on the backside, and still dedicating himself to helping so many executives, entrepreneurs, and leadership teams. What a wonderful conversation. Doug, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening as well. We're truly grateful that you take the time to join us for these episodes and these conversations. Thank you so much. Please do all the things the algorithms ask us to do and give Doug and all of our guests the exposure they so richly deserve. Please like the conversations. Please subscribe to the channel. Please share the conversations. Please comment. Let us know what you like. What would you like to see here more of? What don't you like so much? What would you like to hear and see a little bit less of? We truly value your feedback and thank you for spending the time with us. Of course, we want to thank our sponsors one more time on the way out as well. Humantel. Please go to humantel.com and enter the code Inquasive25 for 25% off of all of their online training. If you have any interest at all, personally, Personally, professionally, and building your skill set for recognizing when people are changing emotions in real time and applying that to achieving your goals and your conversations, go to humantel.com. I can personally vouch for all of their training. Emotional Intelligence Magazine, please go to ei-magazine.com to experience all of their emotional intelligence related resources, articles, books, videos, training programs. They have so much going on there. Please go check them out. And of course, for the professional interviewers, check out Certified interviewer.com for the International Association of Interviewers, the leading organization dedicated to continuing to further their professional standards and expectations in the interview and interrogation industry. They've got so much content, events, online training programs, resources, legal updates, so many things going on there, a community to join and have conversations and support each other. Please check out certifiedinterviewer.com in the International Association of Interviewers. Thank you all again. I appreciate you joining us. Stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.